Welcome to Unite Immigrant Families. I'm Rosemary Vega, an immigration attorney with over 20 years of experience uniting and keeping families together. If you are looking for immigration information, stick around and listen to me and my fellow immigration attorneys as we discuss what's new and debunk myths. Please note, this is not legal advice and no legal advice will be given on this podcast. And welcome back to Unite Immigrant Families. I'm really excited today. We have Elizabeth Mendoza. She's been on the uh, podcast before, and we all know her. She's one of my good friends, an immigration attorney here in Houston. And today we're going to talk about the Afghans and immigration. What is going on um, with the Afghans who have come to the United States? So, Liz, um, thank you for being here. Thank you, Rosemary, for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So I've heard that you have been working very closely to, with the Afghan uh, community here in in Houston. Yes. Yes. Uh, I have been uh, involved in a private volunteer effort uh, with some Afghan families um, who've been resettled here in Houston. I've been working in this for about it's about two months now. Wow. Wow. And so do you know how many Afghans are in Houston? Yeah, I think we have approximately 5,000 Afghans who've been resettled in Houston by about four different agencies. Okay, 5,000. That's a lot. It is. And, and the, do you know who the four agencies are? I do. Uh, it's Catholic Charities. Uh, then it's uh, the YMCA International Services. Then it is Interfaith Ministries of Greater Houston, and it, uh, lastly but not least, it is the Alliance. Great. And they've all joined forces, I imagine, and are resettling the Afghans who came to the U.S. Now, how did they? How did the Afghans get to the United States? So, all of the families that have been resettled uh, were evacuated by the United States government from Afghanistan. Um, and then some were sent to um, third countries. Uh, we met a lot of families that were in Dubai for a short period of time, some that were in Germany for a short period of time, some in Albania for a short period of time. Uh, and then they were brought by the United States government here to the United States. And then they were sent to different military bases uh, most for about anywhere from a two to four month period uh, before the agencies started resettling the families in specific cities. Okay. All so, around the country. So they were all in different military bases. And at this military base, I imagine they were getting background checks and processed. Is Correct. That- they, they were getting screened, vetted, vaccinated. Um, uh, they were getting assistance in applying for work authorizations, social security cards, so that once they arrived in their uh, home, in their new new home city, um, you know they had they had at least some of their processes underway. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. And so when they got here, what kind of status did they get when they came to the United States? So we've seen a variety of situations uh, with the families. We've met some people who came here with um, 
an I-360 special immigrant visa application already filed. Okay, Liz, but did they come in as parole? Are oh, they I'm paroled sorry. in? Yes, uh, they were all, uh, they all entered the United States with a status called humanitarian parole. So they're called parolees, and they were given that status for an initial period of two years. So they all have parole status for two years. And that's, that's not refugee status, though, is that correct? No, it is not. None of them entered as refugees. So they're not refugees, but they're being resettled by uh, these resettlement agencies who normally do resettle refugees. That is correct. And <clears throat> part of uh, some legislation from 2021 uh, authorized the government to provide assistance to resettlement agencies that they would normally provide to refugees. Uh, but this population, they don't have refugee status, but they are for a temporary period of time getting uh, the assistance that newly arrived refugees would normally get. Okay. Uh, but, but no, it's not refugee status. Right. So they're not, they're, they have two years to figure out what they need to do to get some sort of legal status in the United States. Is that accurate? That, that, that is correct. Right. So you've got 5,000 Afghans who've come here. They're all entered on parole status for two years. And in those two years, they've got to figure out what they need to do to get legal status in the United States. And do they, do they speak English? Uh, some do. Some do. Um, the, uh, the one community that I've been working with since the beginning of the year um, we're working with a community of about a little over 100 people, um, and we really only know of a handful in that community that can speak English. The overwhelming majority don't. They're either speaking Pashto or Dari, and okay. some speak, um, well, Pashto and Dari. Okay, and so a lot of them don't speak English. Correct. So how are they going to function and be able to get jobs in the United States if they have a limited language issue here. So that is going to be one of the challenging factors that they deal with in their adjustment to their new country. Um, the resettlement agencies, uh, my understanding is that the resettlement agencies are supposed to connect these families to English as the second language courses mm -hmm. so that the folks can start learning the language. But yes, it's definitely going to be a challenging factor that for them in their adjustment period. Yeah. And so you've kind of um, got involved just because you've met some ladies who said, hey, we need these, um, we have this community at this apartment complex that I, I, <laughs> needs help. I literally, I mean, everybody loves to hate on Facebook, me included sometimes, but I literally got into this through a Facebook group. Uh, a lady who I did not know her posted in a Facebook group that we're both in that she was working with this group. Uh, and she needed donations, and I reached out to her, and we connected, and we've been working together as strictly just private people in this private volunteer effort since the beginning of the year. Yeah, and so I know um, we've talked about this, but they need legal help as well, right? Yes, they do. Every, so, sing every single one of them does. So because they, they only have two years, and you know, for a lot of people, two years seems, oh, that's plenty of time. But in the legal world, two years is not a lot of time. Right. And especially in the immigration world, two years right. is really not a lot of time. So um, what are we seeing? So 
we I know you talked about some some of them have maybe SIV status or may qualify for SIV status. What is SIV? So um, there's a petition called an I360 petition that can be filed by people who are classified as special immigrant uh, visa holders, which for this population means people who work for the United States government, either for our military or as interpreters, and they were providing faithful assistance to the government. And based on that employment with our government, they are eligible to file these petitions that if approved, form the basis for them later being able to get a green card. Great. So SIV, Special Immigrant Visa Holders, and they've had to either be an interpreter or worked for the U.S. government in some form or fashion in Afghanistan, usually the military. Um, What about if they were in the Afghan military and assisting um, with with the U.S. military? I'm... I'm not 100% sure about that, but my understanding of the requirements for the I-360 is you have to have uh, what's called a chief of mission letter. Uh, It's a document that basically acknowledges the employment relationship, the past employment relationship with the Afghan and the American government. Right. Um, And this, and this chief, um, letter, it's, it's called a calm letter. I've, I've heard it called a calm letter, right? Right. Correct. And so they need certain things to be able to get this calm letter as well, correct? Correct. Um, right. if I... there's, a, there's a whole process that exists to apply for the calm letter. You know, you need your credentials and employment authorization letters and recommendation letters from, you know, maybe a captain or a colonel or a general of the United States military that the Afghan person maybe worked with or under. So, yes, there's a whole process you have to go through. To apply for that con letter, if you get the con letter, then you can apply for that petition. And if the petition is approved, then you can apply for your permanent residency. So it's it's a multi-step process. Right, right. So so let's say we have uh, someone who, let's say they have their con letter. They were able to get that con letter before they left Afghanistan or while they were at the military base. And they have it in their hand. So... What's their next step? They need to prepare their I-360 SIV petition, and they need to get it filed. So obviously, we're going to recommend that they use a, an attorney. And some there are many nonprofits who are helping with this. Is that correct? There are. Um, here in Houston, we're trying to you know gather momentum for the nonprofit community to be able to you know staff up. And, you know, reach out to the uh, legal community for pro bono uh, volunteers uh, to start taking cases and help yeah. these people file their applications. Yeah. Is there a filing fee for the I-360? No, there's not. Do Once they file the I-360, do you, are they then in legal status and they're able to get a work permit off of the I-360? No, they're not. Wow. So they still have to stay in this parole status. And what if the I-360 isn't approved before they run out of parole status? I mean, I would imagine that you would try to request an extension of your parole status. Yeah. We don't know yet how flexible DHS is going to be with extending parole status because it's such a a new process. I, I think things are in a state of flux. So it's like almost daily you're hearing rumors about different things that the government's going to do with this population. 
as far as how they're going to process cases or what kind of flexibility or assistance is going to be extended to these families. It's kind of chaotic. Yeah. And what if what if someone doesn't have their comm letter or for whatever reason couldn't get one? Um, what are their so options? Really, that's a really excellent question because not everybody is eligible for a special immigrant visa. They're not. Um, so for the people who are not eligible to file this I-360 petition, we have to see what other options are available to them. Is it going to be applying for asylum? Is it going to be maybe filing a family petition? But they're going to have to explore other legal options if they're not eligible for the I-360. Yeah. So let's talk about asylum. If let's say they don't have any other option but asylum, what? how are they going to show asylum? What are the requirements for asylum? So the first thing that we have to keep in mind is that uh, our laws require, our immigration laws require that somebody apply for asylum within a year of entry. There are certain exceptions to that one-year deadline. One of the exceptions can be that you're in parole status. And while you're in parole status, that one-year clock isn't running for you. But that's not guaranteed that the government will look at it that way if you try to argue that. So, um, you know, most of these people arrived, all of these people arrived last fall. So for a large chunk of this population, they're looking at, for example, this August, this September, this October, of it being one year since they entered the country. And do they need to file for asylum by that, by that time? Um, so the asylum process, yeah, it's, um, you know, you have to prepare an application, you have to get the application documented, you have to get your foreign language documents translated, you need to get it filed with uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services, um, you're going to need to be able to explain, you know, did you, were you persecuted, uh, do you have a well-founded fear of future persecution in Afghanistan, and based on what? Your race, your religion, your nationality, uh, your political opinion, your membership in a particular social group. Um, and you have to be able to convince an asylum officer uh, of these different factors. Um, and that in, in as a matter of discretion, that you're also eligible for asylum. And hopefully you would get a grant for you and uh, everybody included in your application for asylum, like a spouse or children. Yeah. And it's important to show that you have either past persecution or well-founded fear of persecution. But what, is there a legal definition of pers persecution? Yes and no. Um, it's, it's not a bright line definition. There's nothing in our laws or there's nothing in our statute or our regulations that says this is persecution. We have case law that talks about uh, persecution being um, a threat to your life or liberty, you know, a level of extreme harm that can be physical, sexual, psychological, uh, even economic. Um, but something that we're sadly, that we sadly saw recently um, is an example of uh, some Afghans in the Boston area who applied for asylum and they received a notice of intent to deny their asylum application uh, because the uh, Boston Asylum Office wasn't convinced uh, that these particular Afghan applicants um, would be or will be persecuted if they return. Uh, so it's created a lot of buzz about, you know, 
wow, uh, it's not necessarily going to be a slam dunk approval uh, for Afghan to apply for asylum. Right. And that's really scary for a lot of the Afghans because they really do have a fear of returning. They, I mean, under the Taliban regime, they're going to, they probably will end up dead, tortured or dead. That, that, that one presumes that that will be the common argument for, for almost any Afghan who applies for asylum. Correct. Yeah. And to think that the U.S. government is going to deny an asylum application, that's pretty scary for them, I can imagine. So they want to look at other avenues. Correct. Correct. And, and, you know, when you think about it, you know, one of the bases for asylum, one of the grounds for asylum is that somebody says, hey, I'm a member of this particular social group. And in my country, this particular social group, it's always having issues. It's always having problems. And I'm a member of this group and I can I can prove that and I can prove that because I'm in this group, I'm going to suffer harm or I did suffer harm. And one thing that, um, you know, some colleagues are talking about is, you know, this new social group could be, you know, Afghans who were evacuated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Afghans who are evacuated, will they be considered traitors by the Taliban? You know, how will they be looked upon that they left? And now they return, maybe because we deport them. Um, so, yeah, yeah, because you know they evacuated. That means that they didn't want to be under Taliban regime. They wanted to be democracy, like the U.S. Correct. So, yeah, Correct. that that's going to be pretty scary. Um, so they definitely need immigration help. They definitely need attorneys to be doing their helping them with their asylum application. And so. Let's go on. Let's say you, uh, Afghan, he's got the I-360 and it's pending. Can he file for his adjustment of status while it's pending? Our understanding right now is that no, he cannot. But he has to wait until the I-360 is approved and then he can file his application for adjustment of status. Okay. So unfortunately, the petition uh, cannot be filed in conjunction with the application for adjustment of status. I hope that DHS may tweak that and change that. But for now, our understanding is that it has to be this two-step process. Okay. And do you happen to know how long the I-360s are pending uh, to get approved or? I, I, I don't. I don't. Um, I, my understanding is that DHS has promised to accelerate the process of the I-360s for the Afghans, but I mean, since they've only been here since the fall and we're in early March, I uh, I have yet to meet somebody who applied while here mm-hmm. and has already been approved. I've met uh, quite a few Afghans who applied while they were on the base, uh, who applied while they were still in Afghanistan. Uh, but I haven't met anybody who applied while they were here and their petition has already been approved. Maybe maybe there's somebody, but I haven't met them. So I, I think you're accurate. Um, I just went, on, went ahead and went online to see the USCIS processing times. And a lot of them, depending on where it gets sent to get processed, will depend on how soon they will get their the approval or or adjudicated a decision because here it's showing Nebraska Service Center is saying about seven months, but California Service Center 
it's a whopping 23 to 29 months. That is over the two years that they'll be, they'll have parole. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So either uh, DHS is flexible in allowing people to, uh, well, I mean, people in parole status already can ask for an extension of the status. The question is how flexible will DHS be or CIS be in, in granting those right. extension requests of parole status? Is it right. going to be something that's going to be really tough? Is it going to be almost automatic? So right. it'll be interesting to see how the government handles that. So, but once they get, if they get an approval, they get a decision, it's approved, then they can right away pay, apply for their adjustment of status to get their green card. Correct. Now, do they have to pay the filing fee for the green for the adjustment status application? So, my understanding is yes, but they can file a fee waiver. Um, so, yeah, I think most of this population will need to file fee waivers. My concern, and I was talking about this just the other day, is uh, what are we going to do with the medical exam requirement? Yeah. Uh, there is no fee waiver. There's no there's no waiver of the requirement to get a medical exam. And when you get a medical exam, you're going to a private doctor. Um, and so depending on what locale you're in, you know, the fee range can can be pretty hefty. Yeah. So if you're talking about a family that's got mom, dad, and maybe, you know, six kids who meet the age range to get a medical exam, you're looking at something prohibitively expensive. Right. So, right. so I did read um, through USCIS, and um, this was probably about a month ago or so that uh, those who came in and had a medical exam, because uh, many of the refugees, when they come in, they have to go through a medical exam. Right. Um, and the Afghans had to go through some sort of medical right. exam as well when they, when they were evacuated into the U S. So it looks like they're going to take that exam for, however, most exams, but most exams expire. I don't remember if it's 15 or 18 months. Yeah. So they'll, by the time these Afghans are eligible to adjust their status, you're right. I think they will need to do new medical exams. If, if, if that happens, Rosemary, it's going to be so uh, prohibitively expensive because a lot of these families, they're really large. Yeah. Um, a lot of the families that we meet, we're talking about families with six, eight, ten kids. Um, so it could be just a huge, huge cost factor for the family if they wind up having to do that. Yeah, that is big. And so, and some of them actually do have family here, right? Maybe parents yeah. or somebody, and then there might be a family petition that could be done. Yes. Uh, although... Uh, the families who I have been working with, most of the the ones who've told me that they have family here, the family is usually a sibling. And so, as you know, you know the yeah. wait time for a sibling to sibling petition it's it's always over ten years. Yeah, it's it's really ridiculously long. Right. Um, what about, is there any way for them to get some sort of like, let's say a company wants to petition for them, maybe an H-1B or something along those lines? Because some of these people have 
have um, education. They're not, they're, I think you told me the other day, you met a general who was in the Afghan army. Uh, you know, there are some of them are engineers. Yes. Uh, at, at, uh, with the community that I'm volunteering with, I've already met a civil engineer. I've met a physician's assistant. I've met a journalist. Um, I met multiple interpreters. Um, I've met people who, you know, I guess were high level military people. So, I mean, that's definitely another option that some of them might be able to consider if they can get an offer of employment from a company willing to sponsor them for an H-1B. That would be great. Yeah. Or for a labor certification. Um, So I know H-1Bs and they take forever and you have the lottery system, but it's still an option. Yeah. Because because they were paroled in, they do have a legal status and they're able to do it. That's correct. That's correct. So they they entered, you know, in a legal manner uh, and they're here in status. And by this point, um, most of uh, this population already has their work permit and a social security number. Great. Card number. Correct. Great. Great. So what so I know you're working with this these this one group, and you said it's about a hundred people. I think you had told me it was like twenty five families or so. Right, Maybe right. More. Um, our, our final count at this one apartment complex where I volunteer, uh, we have twenty eight apartments, um, and we have over ninety kids uh, at the complex. Uh, so we're looking at it's really over a hundred. We're probably looking at around. 140, 150 people that we work with at this one complex. And at this complex, all the families that we're volunteer with, volunteering with, they have all been resettled by interfaith ministries. Okay. And it, what I know some of the families need resources. What do they need? Everything. Um, starting off with, um, you know, on a macro level, they all need jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, desperately. So they all need jobs. Um, they need transportation because unfortunately Houston's metro system isn't very extensive. Um, and then on a more nitty gritty material level, they need things for their children like shoes, socks, underwear, pajamas. Uh, they need, you know, cleaning supplies for their bathrooms, for their kitchens. They need furniture. Um, they need over the counter medicines. They need food, you know, cooking oil, flour, sugar, salt. Um, vacuum cleaners. Uh, they desperately need used electronics, used laptops, so that the uh, adults can apply for jobs online, so the family can access free apps to learn English. Um, you name it, they need it. Are the children all in school now? Most of them are. Uh, and uh, the community that I'm working with, uh, the children are attending schools in A-Leaf Independent School District. Um, and we have kids from all age ranges. So we have kids that are from infant to 18. So we've got kids in high school, middle school, elementary. Almost all of them have by this point been registered, uh, many of them by us, uh, and are already attending school. Great. So um, those that are in high school, I and I'm just going to pitch this organization. It's called PAIR, uh, Partnership uh, in Advancement of Immigrants and Refugees. And they work with children, mainly, uh, I think, mainly high school. 
kids and make sure that they don't fall through the cracks and help them if they want to apply for colleges and whatnot. Their organization is called PEAR. Um, I was once on their board many years ago. I think they're a wonderful organization. And, um, you know, maybe that's something that we can do is put them in touch. But I want to, to our listeners, I want to make sure that they, you know, if they want to volunteer, if they want to donate, how can they do that? So I would encourage people in the community who are interested in helping contact the agencies. Uh, all of the agencies, they have websites, they have portals that they've set up for people who might want to adopt a family or donate time, services, money, items. So please reach out to the agencies again, Catholic Charities, the YMCA, Interfaith Ministries, uh, the Y. Uh, if you know somebody like me who's just a private person helping and you want to get it, you know, involved in that, contact uh, somebody doing something like that. Uh, but absolutely reach out to the agencies and see how you can help. Great. And I think Baker Ripley is also helping as well. Yes. Baker Ripley is absolutely helping. Baker Ripley is stepping up in an awesome way. We're meeting them today at the co- at the complex, and they're going to be helping us with some really, really critically needed items. We are ecstatic and grateful that Baker Ripley is helping us in that way. Great. So even reaching out to Baker Ripley, they might be able to help, you know, anybody could be able to help with something. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. if you were, you know, it. I talked to a colleague the other day where I pitched to her, could your law firm please donate to us, use laptops? So if somebody, you know, has an item that they think that they could help the family, contact an agency, contact a private person that you know is doing this kind of work and say, hey, I can help in this way. Absolutely. Great, great. So for our listeners, thank you very much. Um, if you want to get a hold of Liz Mendoza to ask her a question or somehow volunteer. Uh, you can reach her at Liz. How can they reach you? Uh, let me give you my office number. It's 713-271-8601 and calls will be routed to me. And I would love to connect with somebody who, uh, or anybody who'd like to help in this effort. Uh, we need all the help that we can get. Great. And you can also email us at uniteimmigrantfamilies at gmail.com. And I will be checking those emails and getting them to the right organizations. I can definitely do that. Thank you very much. And I hope you listen in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening to Unite Immigrant Families. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more information about me or my guest, please email me at uniteimmigrantfamilies at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. I hope you join us on this bi-weekly podcast. No legal advice was provided and none will ever be provided on this podcast.